Hello everybody and welcome to the sixth episode of Coding in Africa. I'm Mark Clark, I work for open source solution integration company here in Johannesburg, South Africa. And I'm uh, Dan Fowler, I'm a remote contractor working on open data and other open things from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Hey Dan, so it's been a while since our last recording, we, sort of life has happened and we've been both been quite busy. So yeah, this hopefully we haven't uh, we haven't lost any any of our audience in, in the process. I'm sure they've been waiting with bated breath for our uh, latest uh, show. You know, I don't know how they've managed to survive so long without any of our pearls of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, um, I feel bad for all those who've passed away, uh, holding their breath for us. But um, let's hope we uh, can make the people who have uh, waited for us happy right now. Yeah, it's definitely worth the wait. This is you know like sometimes. You know, like open source, you release it when it's ready, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know totally. about the release early release often part of it, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult, you know, difficult to find time. You know, it's it's so easy to like, you know, have your all your time sucked up from, you know, from just life. Yeah. Well, th- this part of the time of the year is also our busiest for us, uh, you know, from about September onwards till about just before Christmas. It's like it's crazy busy. It's a bit bizarre. It's sort of always the second quarter or the second half of the year is always much busier than the first half. A lot yeah. of it's also because you know, the summer comes this side, the weather, you know, so the weather's really nice. Like right now, I'm sitting in my sunroom. Uh, it's a bit, it's actually a bit too warm. I better put some blinds in for because I can't have to squint at my at my screen yeah to to kind of code and stuff, which isn't good. I normally end up uh, going back to sleep after a while. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I, you know, so it's bizarre. This part of the half second after you always gets gets hectically busy. Why do you think that is? Why is it so busy now? What do you what do you what do you guess? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, look, I, I have a, th- a theory, but I don't know whether it's valid or not. Uh, you know, because we're not in retail, so I'm gonna see if you're in the retail space, why it would get busier because you know you're getting near Christmas and all of that kind of stuff. It might just be that people start spending more because the weather's warmer and. You know, from a corporate point of view, um, the only theory that I have, and this is just, uh, there's no sort of evidence or other than uh, looking for an explanation, is that I think other companies start slowing down near the end of the year. So they've got longer, they've got more time to think about non operational issues, you know, like new system deployment, new developments, uh, planning for the next year, what they want to achieve, that kind of stuff. And so it gets busier, and then when the new year comes around, I think people are just sort of busy in operational issues, making cash again. Because you know, like if you're not in, if you're not in retail, uh, December January can be pretty lean month if you're not selling yeah. consumer facing items and things like that. So yeah, you know, I think they're sort of gear, you know operationally they operationally focus in the first half of the year, and they get more time to think. Maybe something to do with budgets as well. People have got more time to they have to start spending their budgets. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but it just does get. You know, a lot busier. Yesterday or, or Thursday was a public holiday, yeah, but like on Tuesday for Heritage Day. But Wednesday and, thir- and Friday, like the phones was ringing nonstop with customers phoning in and asking questions. And, and a lot of it is, is like work, which is, is like leads, you know, like sales kind of stuff. Long, So like you're, you're busy, but you're not generating revenue directly, right? Right. Because it's just responding to leads, sending out quotes, sending out proposals, all of that kind of stuff. A lot of it does come right. to naught because I think, um, people, as I say, people are kind of exp- are gathering, thinking or planning what to do, and then either they don't follow through with their plans, or you know, I don't know, maybe they go with they go with another solution or something. But yeah, 
But anyway, but it's, it's sure. a nice town. The only, only negative for me is that it gets harder and harder individual to work because of the nice weather. I mean, oh, even right. yeah, even right now, I just want to go and sort of go go back and, and lie in bed and just like sleep the, the afternoon heat away, and then <laughs> sure. At least in Joburg, you don't have the, the sort of um, pull of the sea uh, from like Cape Town or Durban, where you just want to go to the beach every day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Durban is even worse because of the humidity there. You just want to just suddenly sit there and, and do absolutely nothing. Right. Uh, but yeah, I like the Joburg summers. They're really nice compared to Durban. Durban's a bit too humid, but the winters, yeah, are pretty pretty miserable. You know. Anyway, and 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 in Addis there, it's just getting to the dry season. Yeah, essentially, it's getting uh, the the rains are becoming more and more free, uh, infrequent, uh, which you know is it's okay in a way. Um, but then that means that the it just gets very dusty. The air gets very dusty, and it becomes a little bit less nice to breathe in um, because you know there's so much dirt on the ground, and people are dri- you know driving over the dirt but that hasn't been sort of um, yeah without the rain. It's sort of very dusty. That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, it gets that typical sort of uh, what would you call it image of Africa of dusty plains, as it were. <laughs> yeah, I mean we're in the city right now, though, so it's just a dusty city. But it's nice, you know. The weather is turning is pretty well. The weather is pretty warm. The days are pretty nice. It's a very nice sunny day right now. Uh, my wife is reading in the sun with our dog, so it's uh, pleasant. Cool. So um, our next section is uh, our show and tell section. I'll be uh, leading this one. I live in Addis, and I think I've complained about this before, but it's not really easy for me to like buy new things here. So I'm always a little bit limited in show and tell because. Uh, because it's usually based on the last time I went to the States or somewhere else in the world. But the, the most recent thing I could talk about is my new um, Raspberry Pi 2, which I uh, have now replaced my um, home entertainment system with this new version, uh, this new version of the Raspberry Pi running Kodi, or formerly XPMC. And it's actually running really well. Um, I really could definitely tell the improvement in speed and memory in the new uh, Raspberry Pi. It's a lot more responsive, but still not like incredibly responsive, to be honest. But um, a lot better. Do you uh, do you have a Raspberry Pi? I'm sure you do. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of time to um, do much with it. But yeah, I know that the, the Raspberry Pi twos are supposed to be a lot, a lot faster than the than the Raspberry Pi ones ever were. Yeah, and I know they've also reduced the what's it, the Raspberry? They called the Raspberry Pi two. Another one is the Raspberry Pi B plus, right? I think they reduced the price of the Raspberry Pi B plus quite significantly. Yeah, I think they've yeah they've done a lot of shuffling around of the the uh, the naming and the the power for each one. But yeah, um, I'm not sure exactly what they did. But the Raspberry Pi two is like the orig- is still I think thirty five dollars US is the same price as the original Raspberry Pi. I think it has does it have four cores and um, maybe twice the memory or four times. Do you- I think it's got twice the memory. I can quickly look up. I know the one of the ones we, you know, if you sort of look, Raspberry Pi is always going to have the, um, what do you call it, the mind share. But there's also things like the Odroid and all of that out, you know, which for the same price, you can get a lot more. Right. I know the Odroid is quite cool. The problem we have with the Raspberry Pi trying to distribute them around South Africa is that, you know, the only one who sell them for like, uh, like five at a time or something. So when you order like 30, then they say no, you know, so it gets a little bit confusing <laughs> for, for us. Like, you know, what is their, what is their plan? Cause it seems like they always got, 
more demand than they can handle. And well, the, the laws of economics say, well, then right. you ramp up production, right? And I'm not quite sure why they're not doing that. It's a little bit bizarre how their sort of business model works. Uh, maybe they're just focusing on on Europe and, and, and the UK. Maybe that's a primary market and they don't really, you know, I really don't know what the what the story is, but I know if you try and phone and say, listen, we would like to, you know, redistribute them here in South Africa. Really? It's basically like a no-go. And yeah, and if you try and sort of say, well, you know, like typically when you phone a supplier and say, look, we want to bring in some of your stuff, you know, the more the more sure. you buy, the happier they are. These guys, when I, when I phoned, well, I spoke to somebody, one of the reps, and I said, listen, now how many do you want? And I said, well, you know, because we're small companies, we don't really want to bring in 30 because it'll take us a while to sell those. But, um, you know, so, well, you know, we, what's your minimum order? They said, well, it's better to go for five than to go for like 30 because they'll sell you five, but they won't sell you 30 or so. I don't know whether that's changed. We, we basically, we have, we've given up trying to import them um, directly and distribute other products like the mm-hmm. Odroid and things like that. Yeah, the, the, the Raspberry Type Part 2 Model B, so it's a second generation one. It's a 900 megahertz quad-core ARM processor. Wow. One gig of RAM. I think that's, you know, so the processor and the one gig of RAM are the major improvements there. Besides this other normal, you know, GPIO pins and all of that kind of stuff. You know, as, as, uh, as fast as it is, um, like I said, it's, it's not like that fast. You know, I try to use it briefly as a, as a, on the desktop, you know, just having it as a sort of like uh, backup desktop, and you know, it, it's it's still pretty um, mm-hmm. slow in a lot of ways. You can't really use it the same way you'd use your normal laptop, which I guess is to be expected for thirty five dollars. But still, I expect a lot more. Yeah, but you know, that's all typical sort of sometimes with the open source community. People promote it like it'll be this great thing for yeah. for doing stuff, and it's just not there. For most of your users, I, I remember I also tra- you know loaded up the Raspberry Pi. The earlier model, the B, the Raspberry Pi One, I suppose, if you want to call this one the Raspberry Pi Two, and you know, even as just using it as a yeah. desktop was sort of barely usable. Uh, so you know, you can't really use it for anything. Look, if you, you know, if you're going to use it just as a, I mean, that that for me was well, then you might as well just go with an Arduino. If you're going to right. use it just to do GPIO stuff and use it as a sensor and that kind of thing, you know, obviously you could run at least a probably Linux scripts on it and Python scripts or whatever you mm-hmm. wanted on it or Node that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was like, okay, you know, you can't replace your desktop with it. And I think it's a problem with a lot of these devices. People get them and they think it's yeah, it's going to be like a full-fledged computer and it's not, you know. But yeah, I still think there's this great opportunity to learn from it, but not, not learn by using it. And also I think it's kind of defeats the purpose if you're going to get it and run it as a desktop because the whole point is people are meant to sort of sort of hack on it, you know, and build solutions and integrate the, the add-on boards and yeah. the cameras and all of that kind of stuff. So this Cody, I mean, how's it running? Because, you know, that's another one, oh, XBMC. I remember I loaded it a couple of times. Once again, it's one of those those flagship products of the open source community for like a media server. And it, always, it just sort of never worked exactly properly for me. I don't know whether it's changed since um, you've loaded it on now or you know, and since it got renamed to Cody. I think it works really well, I, I think. Um, it's a really, you know, for a while, my, my wife and I had been just using a laptop um, for watching movies and stuff. It's a great improvement over that. I mean, just, you know, by default, say, uh, it'll pick up where you've left off in a movie. If you are very good with your metadata, you can, you know, sort by genre and you can actually have um, search by actor through the interface. Again, if your metadata is is up to snuff, I would say. (laughs) 
And it's you know, like I said, it's responsive enough to 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 for for general uh, entertainment purposes. What was the problem you're having? I'm trying to to remember exactly. I think it was more like kept on losing some settings and and things like that. Um, might have been codecs as well, but it wasn't. It just wasn't. You know, you could you couldn't give it to like your parents to kind of use. Uh, you know, it always have to be uh-huh. um, sort of fiddled with every now and then to get it to to work properly. And this is uh, on you were did you talking about on a on a this is an installation you had on a Linux desktop? Yeah, or? I, 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 like, an, like yeah, on a desktop of of some kind, like an old sort of PC lying around that I had, and I was just going to. It was when I was messing around with. Uh, it's still one of those things on my to-do list, like video recording and live streaming and things like that, you know, just kind of getting into that type of stuff. And obviously just like as a media server to see what um, XBMC gave you over and above just clicking clicking on the thing and playing, you know. It could be that in the context of the uh, Kodi distribution for the Raspberry mm-hmm. Pi 2, it all comes together in a way that it probably doesn't come together on a desktop. Like, yeah. every, like all the right codecs are packaged in the distribution. All the scripts are set up properly, so there's nothing to, to really fiddle with. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I would say it is, at this point, with what I have, it's a pretty plug-and-play kind of thing. You know, you write to your SD card, plug it in, and you're done, you know? Oh, excellent. Okay, yeah, I must maybe because, you know, currently I use the trans stream to the PS4. PS3, sorry. Uh, yeah, but that thing's pretty crappy because over Wi-Fi and doesn't buffer enough. So I must come downstairs on the smart TV. That's pretty cool. You just you just share it as a, what you call those things, um, DLNA service, and right. it picks it up, um, you know, from, from your storage server. So that's pretty cool. The TV that comes built in, but the one upstairs isn't, you know, it's just the one in the bedroom isn't such a great... Uh, well, it wasn't ever. It's not a smart TV, so it gets a bit annoying, you know. And especially since you all have, you all have all kinds of codex issues with bloody the Sony PS3 for some reason, it's unsupported data types, and who knows? You know? I mean, okay. and, you know, and it's quite disappointing because I just ripped them from my CDs, DVDs, which I bought. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> okay. Um, just to tell everybody, this this um, episode is sponsored once again by LPI Southern Africa. Uh, that's the Linux Professional Institute Southern Africa. So LPI is one of the premier or preeminent uh, Linux certifications in, in the world. It's world, world recognized. Uh, the exams are set and is an international body that sets the exams from level one to level three. So it's not just a once-off uh, certificate to say, hey, I know Linux is a whole career path. Um, that you can follow with with the LPR certifications, uh, you know. So if you get to level three, you can specialize in security or in a Windows environment uh, or virtualization, and they're always introducing new streams. Uh, so if you're interested in any of the certifications, you can go to lpr.org, and under the certifications, you'll see LPR one, two, and three, and what all of the, the objectives are for each of those levels. So LPR one is a level, Linux server professional. LPR two is Linux network professional, and then LPR three they call it the Linux enterprise professional. But that's where you, where you specialize. You know, as we all know, that the demand for Linux skills and people with who know Linux employment opportunities is just improving day by day, as well as the salaries there. So, if you're interested in getting certified in Linux and changing careers, or just proving to you know employers that you know Linux, um, and that's why you should get that awesome job at uh, you know at Amazon or Google or any of those other international companies that are now present in South Africa or other places in Africa. 
uh, consider the Linux Professional Institute. There's lots of training partners all over um, Africa. So, you know, the sign of training partners across in South Africa. I know there's people in Cape Town, there's people in Durban, and obviously people in Johannesburg as well that do uh, Linux LPR training. Or you can just um, get material online or, or buy the books from Cybex and things like that and train yourself and then write the exam at any um, Pearson's View training center or, or exam center. Cool. Thank you, Mark. So as far as our next section, it is what I learned this week. And I'm only just now realizing that it's actually been more than a month since we last recorded. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's it's been a while because I had to do, I know there was Software Freedom Day and there was all the other stuff that I had to prepare. Then there was a free beer sessions, which I had to give a talk at. So it's been been about three weeks at least since since then. I think we had a week before that. So yeah. So what I learned this month. (laughs) Yeah, right. And, um, yeah, you know, uh, for me, I mean, more, you know, more generally, I, you know, I've been, I've been learning a lot more about uh, Python and uh, JavaScript development, but I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later in the show. Um, one thing I can point to right now that I've learned uh, is a little bit about um, Discourse, this uh, new uh, forum, well, not that new, this really nicely packaged forums uh, solution by the guy who uh, created Stack Overflow and writes the Coding Horror blog. Discourse is a Ruby and Rails app and it's distributed via uh, Docker. It's a, it's a really neat sort of, uh, I think, model for distributing software. Like in the past, I imagine, you know, you'd say you wanted to install WordPress or whatever, they'd give you, a, at best, they'd give you a, a tarball. <laughs> and, um, You'd have to try to, you know, fit it to work on your system, which is fine, I suppose. But it, it is that sort of extra friction in, in getting the, the thing up and running. With Discourse, you know, it's really kind of interesting how you basically install uh, this really well-packaged kind of almost distribution, I would say. This full Linux uh, image under Docker. And for um, development, development is done by, uh, I would say downloading the GitHub repo and then running Vagrant, you know, which will install a virtual machine exactly as they specified for running uh, Discourse. So there's nothing really to like configure, I mean, nothing really to configure to get it up and running, which I think is interesting. What do you think about that, Mark? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, you know, this containerization is all of the, all of the rage these days. You know, if you look at it like Ubuntu with the um, what they call them snap packages and all of this is you know with transactions and rollbacks, it's an area which which I've I've been hearing about. I haven't yet investigated fully. I I kind of played around with Docker when it first came out, and you know it looks it looks cool like as a terms of a like a lightweight sort of virtualization solution. But you know, also if I think about it, you're going to end up with this like sort of fragmented package installation, right, or software because. Now, instead of getting things from, uh, let's take a traditional Linux approach, right? Everything comes to distro, gets updated with your distro, you got app get update and it updates everything. And, and the whole sort of selling point of containerization, besides obviously just virtualization, it's like, well, you know, your developers are reliant on a certain package and now you don't have to, you know, if you upgrade and that package isn't available or you've got a different version, you have to worry about all these conflicts. Now you can put it in Docker and then the, the developer just gives us to the system admin and says, deploy it. Uh, the question becomes who's responsible for updating that, right? Because you don't want to just leave it on this old version of, I don't know, OpenSSL because, well, that happens to work, only one that works with your application. But, you know, you don't you don't just let go app get update inside that 
inside that package, right? Inside the container. Yeah. Um, that's the one thing. Um, the, the other thing is, is that it's, it's, you know, the other thing that people sort of like it for is because it's like a, almost like a, you know, there's other th- trend that's happening is a universal package format for Linux distributions, which would be really great, right? Because at the moment, that's part of the problem why, you know, it's hard to sell software for Linux is because if you want to, you have to create a package for, for Debian, for any base systems like Ubuntu and Debian. You have to create a package for RPM-based systems, and then they might be different for SUSE than it is for, you know, Fedora and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, that sort of was a barrier to entry or, or adoption in software in Linux. But then, uh, yeah, you know, so I think a lot of issues just left to be worked out in, in, in this space. But I think it does provide like a great way for somebody to sort of say, look, here, download this this container and run it and you don't have to worry about setup. You know, and to a degree, you'll get that sometimes like like things like Alfresco, you'll go there and say, look, if you don't know how to set up Tomcat and MySQL or PostgreSQL databases, do all this stuff. Yeah, you can just download this bundle that includes Tomcat already. Just unzip it and then just run it. Right? And the problem yeah. I always had with that is, is that well, who's patching that? <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I can see that for for me, the the lure to it is is more um, having a lightweight virtualization solution, so I can get much more density on my server. Um, you know, these other virtual machines, full virtual machines, they take up a lot of resources and not doing much. Yeah, because right, you know we sort of come to the stage now where people have a virtual machine per application, which I'm not quite sure um, whether that's necessarily uh, well, it's not a bad thing, but is it also a good thing? You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with uh, running your your mail server on the same machine that you're running a web server. You know, um, obviously not the public. Well, you know, even if it's public facing, right? Uh, I mean, or running your mail server on the same machine you're running your internal LDAP server. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, you know, you know, people might say it's easier to deploy if they're in separate separate VMs. If the traffic's getting heavy, you can just move the you know quite easily move the one virtual machine. But yeah, you, know, you know, I, I guess I, I need to. I'm waiting for it to settle down. I'm I'm looking at it and observing it from the sidelines, and I'm going to wait and see what's going to happen in the containerization space because you know there's also LXD. I think it's called now from. Uh, Ubuntu, which is their sort of container solution, uh, which they're claiming is like, you know, more efficient and all of that. And then there's all the security issues around it. But yeah, you know, let, let's let's see. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I imagine I hear that you've been working, you've been experimenting with Libvirt. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, so I'm still sort of just using the plain old KVM, or it was originally started with a Zen virtualization, and then moved to KVM. But, you know, LibVirt is just a library that abstracts away the differences between all these different virtualization solutions. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, that, that's where I'm kind of been playing with and where I'm kind of staying. I'm quite happy with that at the moment. So not necessarily into this full sort of cloud infrastructure kind of thing, because uh, a little bit overkill in many, in many situations for a lot of clients, yeah. having a full sort of cloud infrastructure. Um, you know, and and some people will say that sort of VPSs or you know, for want of a better word, or virtual machines aren't really cloud. But I disagree. To you know, it's basically server densification and ability to move your workloads around. Um, but yeah, you know, one of the things I discovered recently, I you know, is that with with LibVirt, the API just keeps on growing and growing, and it's got more and more stuff you can do um, programmatically to to control your virtual machines. And there's a whole bunch of new tools out. Well, they might have, maybe they've been out for a while, but the libvirt guest FS tool set, right? 
And then there comes things like vert resize to resize your, if you've got a file-based uh, virtual machine mm-hmm. and vert file system to expand the file system. I know a file-based virtual machine, if you extend the size of that virtual machine, you know, because you've got to extend the partitions, then you've got to extend the file system. And that can be a bit of a tricky process if you get it wrong. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of interesting support tools around that now. And one of the interesting commands I found as well was a command called truncate. You know, they're always finding new Linux commands. And I think this has been around for a while. It's not necessarily part of the the libvirt guestfs set of tools. Um, you know, but basically you can extend file systems, I mean, extend the size of files, etc., um, without having to kind of append a whole bunch of nulls or zeros at the end to try and extend the file system. So it's just, it's just interesting that... There's all this new stuff to always um, find and, and, and learn, and libvirt is still, is still growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever used libvirt um, directly? Like, and and the sort of command line front end, versh or vershell, or versh, I suppose? <laughs> no, I haven't actually. My interaction with uh, virtualization has been very limited, um, you know, aside from uh, Docker on the server and, say, Vagrant on my desktop. I really haven't, you know, dug in too much in sort of uh, sysadmin level um, virtualization. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Vagrant is something which I haven't used a lot of. I know it's used more, the developers use it a lot to, to spin up um, and deploy and test applications. With, uh, you know, I've kind of stuck with, uh, with, with libvirt and just KVM. So you, when you, you use libvirt and KVM for the same purposes as other people for um for the, for the purposes that people other people would use vagrant for is that what you're saying yeah you know look uh, i mean i guess for vagrant what i've seen is if you want to sort of spin up like three or four instances to test your load balancer and to test you know your caching and if you want a separate machine for your for your database and stuff like that uh, you know I, I suppose in many cases when we when i'm writing software it doesn't matter to me where the database is actually sitting because it's written in such a way it can sit anywhere. Right. Um, I, you know, I, where I've seen vagrant more is for when people are want to do this. It's like, okay, now we've got this whole, some new person comes into your organization and need their development environment set up. You don't want to have to go into and look, yeah, install MySQL, set it up this way. You could just give them vagrant and like a, um, you know, like a puppet script or whatever and just say run this and everything set up for them. Like they get repos and, yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, you can actually build that Puppet script into the Vagrant file, and uh, that'll, help, that'll, help, that'll be how your um, machine is, prov- is provisioned at first load. Mm-hmm. So, it, it's, I mean, it's really, I, I really like it. It's very handy, very straightforward. Yeah. It works very well. So, so you do your development on the Vagrant virtual machine, or do you do it on your desktop and you're just using Vagrant to kind of deploy well, I guess it all depends on what I'm doing. Um, mm-hmm. So if I wanted, like, for instance, if I'm using, like, if I'm, what are, I'm trying to write a plugin for Discourse, and mm-hmm. in order to do that, I mean, really the only straightforward way is to, to uh, uh, spin up a Vagrant uh, uh, virtual machine using the Vagrant file that's deployed with, that's distributed with um, Discourse. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, once that's once I, you know, once I have the repo on my machine, all I have to do is vagrant. All I have to do is run vagrant up, and it'll download, you know, the the operating system. It'll download the um, the scripts that are well. It'll run the scripts necessary to spin it ever spin it up uh, into the development state, and I can start running writing the plugin from there. You know, 
Yeah, I suppose that that sort of makes sense. You know, for me, I, I just tend to deploy to Apache or Tomcat or JBoss, and I just run those like locally um, on my machine, and I always have them available because also when we do training or we have to go to a client and troubleshoot, you kind of want it readily available. Uh, you know, maybe I could move some of my workflow to Vagrant. I just haven't um, taken the time to kind of to do that. Uh, you know, m- maybe I take it for granted that that some people should just know you know how to set up the, the dev environment. <laughs> right. But it might be more it might be more productive. You know, just sort of provide them with a Vagrant script and say, hey, there you go. You know. Well, you know, I think part of it is also is the ability to define your development environments in a, a single script or a set of scripts, you know, yeah. in a way that you probably couldn't otherwise if you weren't using one singular tool to package it all up. You yeah. know what I mean? Like maybe you might have a system of bash scripts that'll set up your environment, set up a new environment, yeah. set up something the way you want it. But obviously if you're running, if you depending on Ansible and uh, or Chef or Puppet or whatever, it really makes sense to pair that with... Um, Vagrant. For yeah, for me, for me, that's the impression I was left with. Like, okay, if it's complicated, you're trying to set up some like memcache and some other kind of complex infrastructure that the development environment needs. Yeah. Um, you know, and, okay, it might just be maybe setting up the build environment for somebody because they might need, you know, a whole bunch of different tools for that. And you don't want to, you know, you want to kind of automate that process. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, maybe I just I just have all those tools already available, so I, you know, already set up that I don't. But I think I, mean, I, I do think there's there's advantage to going the sort of vagrant route. I know one one advantage is definitely is that whole thing of like blowing everything away and starting from scratch. So you yeah. know, it's not like you kind of oh well, I'm reliant on there being a certain structure in my database for this to work, and then if I give it to somebody and they don't have that structure, they can't get it working, and then you right. have to kind of work out oh it's because this one table doesn't have some data in there which you expect to be there on startup and that kind of stuff, you know. So I think it's it's good for, for creating software which you can blow away and redeploy, you know, at the click of a button uh, rather than being sort of fragile software that, you know, that sort of suits the whole sort of cloud environment. Everybody is just, okay, machines come and go and your, your applications be quite robust to, to also support that, that kind of setup. It needs totally. everything defined, you know. But heck, you know, even without cloud, my machines come and go to, you know, yeah. <laughs> my Mac will all of a sudden decide to kill itself. So uh, oh. that's another reason. Don't, to... don't, don't, don't say that out loud. Some Mac family <laughs> might like, you know. Right. But, you know, just, just on this virtualization thing, you know, I've been having to get to grips with old system D now these days uh, since it's in the, I thought, well, I better learn it. And I'm, I'm one of those guys that's not really, um, I'm not anti-system D, but I'm not so pro it either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's. I think you know it's easy to portray the people that are against system D or have problems with it as like these people that don't understand anything. I think also on the other hand, a lot of people that are pro system D have no clue what they're talking about. Mm. In fact, you know, as with most of these debates, I think most of those guys have no idea what they're talking about. It's just like progress for progress' sake. Um, obviously, system V or system five had to be improved. So there's no there's no debate about that. Right? We have to find a new solution. But, you know, it's, it's just like the way, if you look at system D, if it was just an init script, that would be fine. But it's becoming more and more than an init script, right? There's a whole lot of tools and utilities around it. You know, and it's, it's sort of one set of tools developed by one team that's taking over everything. Mm-hmm. Did you know that they now, there's something called machine um, CTL, 
machine control, which is supposed to, looks like something to do with virtualization. So I don't know whether they're taking over from Libvirt. It doesn't seem to be integrated into Libvirt because um, I can't find much information about it. Uh, I suppose if you go, in, you know, they'll tell you, go read the developer mailing list and stuff. So, yeah, you know, but I've got a hundred other things to do other than read the developer mailing list. <laughs> But, you know, uh-huh. I started up some, lib, some machines with Libvirt and then I ran this machine CTL. I said list, list machines or, or list and it didn't see anything. So I don't know whether it's a, it's, a, it's a totally new tool to control virtual machines or what it is or you know, what technology it is. Is it only using – or these are KVM machines as well. I didn't pick them up as KVM machines, so I'm not quite sure what that is. But, you know, the more and more you look, there's host control, there's um, login control. Oh, man, it's just like taking over everything. And – I think for me the main issue, yeah, is is that the, that's one of the the things with with. I mean, yes, if you have to try learn cron when you first come across cron as a new user, it's like difficult to understand and follow. You know, if you have to sort of say, how do you set your time your time server and your the time daemon you're going to you're going to sync with in Linux? You know, it's a little bit difficult to do. I don't know what you're talking about. Cron is totally straightforward. It makes a hundred percent. Uh, totally yeah, intuitive, Kron, I, obvious. Yeah, yeah, there you go. You know like what I mean? If you want to run a command every five minutes, obviously you just do star slash five. Star, star, yeah, exactly, star, man. star. And then the, um, <laughs> yeah. and the command. So, <laughs> but yeah, so, so what's happening? They're replacing all those tools, which, you know, which, yeah, they do have the, the issues, right? But it's like this one sort of, how can I put it? It's this one way of doing things. It's one way of seeing the world. And it's like this uniformity or conformity all the way through the tools I think they're trying to bring. I think that's basically the objective, right? Is to get uniformity and conformity all the way through these tools. And they look, they look like they come from one source, right? So it's not just one big binary. It's lots of little binaries. And people will say, oh, yeah, but you could swap them out with your own binaries if you want. You know, and that's true. But, you know, what people say is, well, why don't you go to distribution? Doesn't use system D. So listen, the reality is if you want to run something in production, right, there isn't any other solution. Yeah. And so, so that's an argument or, or, or a point which is, you know, which is invalid in my point of view. It's, it's, it's a facile response that doesn't even acknowledge the realities of the real world in which, in which we live. You know? So no one's really got a choice about ripping out System D and not running without it. Um, and trying to say, well, why don't you go start your own? That's also, you know, um, a little bit disingenuous because um, obviously I don't have the skills to go and start my own Init system and things like that, you know. So I think people sort of advancing those arguments are are missing the point and are being disingenuous and you know, um, in fact, just deliberately trying to ignore what the issues are. Because I think you know the strength of Linux comes from the fact that it's a whole bunch of these small little single-purpose utilities that may be chaotic. They might not be uniform in approach. You know, uh, one takes capital H for for human readable form, and other one takes lowercase h. You know, all of that kind of stuff. But that's, I think, you know, is also the strength of, 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 of Unix or the yeah. Linux philosophy because you can string them together and pop them together. To, and, it's, you know, the, your solution emerges from these different tools that aren't sort of uniform um, and do a single purpose. But you can, argue, you can argue that our previous discussion on virtualization more generally, discor- uh, the uh, Docker and Discourse examples and Vagrant and even as sort of... Um, uh, evidence of the fact that some of that small tools Unix philosophy can get a little bit too complex in, for a given um, application so that you need someone to package it all up for you before, yeah. uh, so you don't have to deal with you know, how this tool interacts with this little tool and how it varies from system to system. You know what I mean? So 
Yeah, I don't mind people packaging it up, but if you take those tools away, I think you're going to lose something in the long run, right? I mean, the example I'll give is like, if you only know Bash, right? And you're not a programmer, but using those tools, you can string together a solution, which you couldn't do in any other, you couldn't do it in Windows, right? I mean, it's just impossible. Well, I don't know about, I don't know about now. Now, they're, now there's PowerShell, right? That apparently yeah. people really like. But they probably don't have all of the tools, right? And that's the thing. It's like, uh, I mean, when you look at Linux commands, you're always finding a new one. You think, gee, that thing was written like years ago. Yeah, I mean, like, yes, there's some baggage, you know, when they were dealing with dumb terminals and TTYs and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, it is difficult to wrap your mind around. Um, so maybe that needs to be modernized. But I don't think the solution is to have one project that dictates everything. All of the tools should be should fall under its control and should fall under its way and its preferred way of doing things. You know, that's the whole thing. Diversity, as we all know, right, diversity is a strength. Um, if you sort of kill off diversity, you're going to end up with problems in the long run. And I think for me, that sort of summarizes my my point on this thing. You know, it's not like expect system D to fail or fall over or not work, because that's another what would you call a straw man argument that the people who oppose people who oppose system D mm -hmm. <laughs> put up, you know, it's like no one expects it not to work. right? Uh, but it's something like architectural, architectural decisions or bad architectural decisions or design decisions only become apparent long after the things in production. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's why it's like the guy launches the app and it works great at testing. And then suddenly after three years, when it, when the number of users increases or something, it falls over. I suspect what's going to happen is that you got, you might sort of see it like, it'll be hard to kind of really measure this and sort of substantiate it, but there's just going to be a decrease in the number of sort of hacked together solutions that you're going to find out there, you know, because it's just, it's just not going to be as easy to do as it was before, because it's like this uniformity that's been imposed on everything. There might be, you know, an intentional uh, beneficial intentional thing. <laughs> Yeah, but that's the thing. I think that's why, you know, also I think, but this say, that's I think the strength of Linux is, is, is that these things that they've got the sharp edges, but they're also able to do things. Um, you know, and I suppose you could legitimately say, well, System D won't, will not, not allow you to do that. But I just think it's the way the tools are written. They're more monolithic, they're more coarse grained, you know, they're less expressive uh, than your typical sort of Linux tools. Whereas if you go on a normal man page, you'll see like, you know, options. F going on for like 10 or seven, 10 or 12 pages of options, right? And you look at the system D tools, there's a lot sort of less, right? <laughs> less, less options. And that can be good and it can be bad, I suppose. But, you know, anyway, that, that's, that's my sort of um, current position on, on system D. So obviously I'm learning it and I have to keep on getting up to speed with it. I mean, what can you do, you know? But, right. um, you know, I think it's going to, it's going to have its, um, uh, you're going to gain something with it, but you're also going to lose something with it. That's what that's my, I suppose the summary of my of my position on it. Well, keep us up to date. Yeah, I'll see you know and see what else I, I learn there. So, but I want to see what this machine CTL is all about. They've taken over Cron. They've taken over ACP. What's it? Um, the power interface, the configuration and power interface. I mean, so they've taken over mounting. They've taken over everything. You know. Mm -hmm. So let's see where where, uh, where they stop next. You know. <laughs> Um, other thing I want to talk about is just my, you know, running free BSD yeah, with ZFS, uh, use it for non-critical systems, yeah, basically for the home setup. One of the reasons to get up to speed on free BSD, so if I ever have to um, make the switch because system D prevents me from doing what I want to do, then, you know, I'm, I'm sort of got this, I'm skilled up in <clears throat> free BSD. But I don't know if you remember one of the first episodes I talked about one of my disks sort of disappearing and then I just unplugged it, yeah, put, uh, plugged it back in. 
and it came back. Well, anyway, finally it died, so I replaced that. Mm-hmm. And in the process, you know, it was always good. That, that's one of the reasons I like running these things and sort of infrastructure that you're using because it forces you to learn. So anyway, I replaced that disk, got my ZFS back up, learned a whole bunch about how disks work and, and FreeBSD, um, you know, and got it back up and running. But in the process, uh, I don't know actually what happened. So I don't think I documented what the disk partitions, how they were actually set up in the beginning. Um, and because it's a new system, you know, you, you don't have like a normal way of doing it. So you kind of know, okay, this is how I probably set it up. But I ended up with my swap, my swap partition being, I think, 64 kilobytes. Uh-huh. And that, you know, so, so what's happened now, it keeps on running out of swap space. And then my DNS server dies off for some reason. I don't know why it always kills off the DNS server. So... Yeah, I've got to, my next project is to is to just redo that, keep all the data, and you know, bought some more disks. But I have to make it as a as a side project. Sure. Okay, well that's enough about uh, ZFS. Just to give some quick report back for the meetups that happened in the last month or so. Uh, we had Software Freedom Day on the nineteenth of September, so that was held in Pretoria this year. Uh, it was organised by Carl Fisher. So thanks, Carl, for organising that. He organised the last two years, so he's um, yeah, you know, did a good job there, and it was quite an interesting day. Uh, we, we one of the Software freedom is always more about an ideological angle, right? About software freedom, that what is software freedom and why it's important and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I gave a talk there on on React JavaScript framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were other people talking about, you know, uh, academic uh, access to information and how, you know, I don't really understand the whole academic uh, setup and how that works. It basically looks like there's a monopoly that controls the publishing of academic papers and you have to pay them to publish your paper and you have to pay them to read papers. So it sounds like completely, you know, an inequitable setup there. I don't know how they managed to get themselves into that position where they charge. I mean, South Africa was spending something like a billion dollars a year on, you know, they're going to spend like 1% of GDP on research and most of are just going to paying for these academic journals. So it's not actually going to the researchers to do research and discovery and all of this kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, and they just sort of talk about open data and, you know, the initiatives at the university to try and break the stranglehold that these different companies have on publishing and accessing academic information. It's like bizarre because it's paid for by public funds, right, um, this research, and then it gets locked up in these, in these proprietary sort of uh, data, data stores. Yeah, you know, it's um, – I'll tell you, my uh, – I didn't – I wasn't able – obviously, I wasn't able to – attend the Software Freedom Day with you. But um, I will say that one of the first things that I did uh, when I touched down in South Africa, I guess four years ago now, uh, was mm-hmm. attend the Software Freedom Day. And it was like, you know, it's a funny way to be introduced to the country. <laughs> but uh, that is how I was introduced to the country, essentially. That was my first mm-hmm. sort of like event with people that mm-hmm. I went to in South Africa. It was a really nice time. I'll say that, you know, uh, it was at Software Freedom Day that I was introduced to this uh, this concept of open data uh, in a real way, and there's a, a pretty direct line between my first ex- that experience, listening to someone I forget what his name was talk about open data, and where I am right now, and the kind of job that I'm doing. So I think it's it's been really kind of formative for me, I would say. Yeah, so I mean, there was it was this lady that she spoke last year as well you know, about the initiatives that she's trying to run at one of the universities to um, open access to data and all of this kind of stuff. But, you know, the problem with a lot of it is if you don't really, 
know all of the terminologies and how that industry, as it were, works. It's a bit difficult to kind of follow the details. Other than the picture you get is that it's like really bad. Um, there was also somebody talking about, you know, the African government has going to adopt some new, well, they released some some laws for comment, right? Or laws that they want to propose, propose, propose laws uh, for copyright in order to bring it into the digital age. And uh, once again, as, as usual, the African government legislation is quite draconian and completely misses the point. It always seems to be, I don't actually understand how they ever get these things drafted because, you know, it, it always seems to be like complete craziness um, that comes out instead of something that's actually, well, yeah, you know, just modify a little bit and maybe people can object. But anyway, it was once again, it was some, some crazy stuff there. Like, I think they want you to, like the Film and Publications Board wants, you know, access to, if you write a blog post, you must go to them and get it rated or something stupid and things like that. Well, you know, uh, you know, my, my impression of that stuff is uh, you're asking, like, I don't understand how this, how, how the government works, how the government drafts these crazy laws. But, you know, my reading of things is that generally speaking, the government doesn't write these laws. Rather, they're written by, at least in America, they're written by lobbyists, which um, the relevant officials, uh, you know, basically don't really have much of a, you know, say in, in writing just because, I mean, they're written by lobbyists for the government mm-hmm. to just pass. You know what I mean? Yeah, look, I, I've also seen that as well. It's like all of these sort of pressure groups write the stuff, which is like completely impractical. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, these issues are important. I'm not saying they're not important issues, but it'll be written by some like fringe environmental group, you know, and say, well, I understand where we need to get, but you can't expect people to ride bicycles to work in South Africa, you know. That is, I would, uh, <laughs> I would agree to that. <laughs> as much as I love bicycles, I, I would have to agree with that. Yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. It's like, I mean, like this month now, they've got something with Santon, which is like the sort of economic heart of Johannesburg, which is the economic heart of South Africa and um, some would say Africa. They want to uh, close off in coordinates so people must use... Okay, I don't mind saying tr- promote the use of public transport. That's great. The challenge in South Africa, of course, is that public transport is atrocious. But they also want people to, like, cycle. And, like, I was driving there, had to go some meeting there, and they've got, like, traffic lights now for, for bicycles, mm-hmm. for cyclists. And it's, like, just, like, crazy stuff. There's, like, no cyclists anywhere in sight. But if, all the traffic must just, like, wait now for this... Yeah, it might be an argument while you create the environment and then people will start. But I just can't see it happening in any ways because people live too far away from the you know, this, where they work. So unless you're going to put your bicycle in your boot, drive to the CBD and then take your bicycle out and drive around, you know. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, this is a tricky topic for me because I, I'm going to, I don't know if you know this about me, but I am somewhat of a cycling advocate. advocate. <laughs> um, uh, so I am all for these kind of initiatives, but I, I see your point. I mean, this is really off topic, but um, <laughs> I can see your point that, you know, in a place like Joburg, it, it's kind of irrelevant given the way the city and the people who work in the city uh, have distributed themselves. You know, people don't live, at least compared to a place like New York, where people live and work basically in the same place. I feel like in, in Joburg, a lot of people commute in from the suburbs and it's really not sort of a thing you can, you can't really just cycle from your house to, to work and yeah. back. I mean, that's something I would do in New York, but something definitely I would never do in South Africa. Yeah. I mean, I think also the public transport was, was up to, up to snuff, you yeah. know, I mean, 
like you know they have the car train yeah which was an initiative which they launched a few years ago and that's great right it's like a I suppose you wouldn't call it a high speed train but it's a train between Joburg and Pretoria and that really does work really well mm-hmm. uh, you know I wish there was better public transport you know, I didn't have to sit in traffic all day uh, well luckily for me I've organised my life that it's not like that but you know uh, for some other suckers unfortunately they have to spend probably just as half the time they spend at work they spend the same amount of time in traffic you know so right. yeah, so one of the interesting things that happened as well was that um, of course Microsoft pitched up to um, participate in Software Freedom Day as part of their ongoing marketing um, campaign to convince us all that they have seen the light and they now love open source. Um, you know, look, I, what, what I don't really like about their initiatives with this is that you know, there's lots of companies that are in open source and they use open source and they contribute back, but they don't try and convince us that they fundamentally open source at their core, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like Oracle... You know, even things like IBM, they will trumpet this sort of, you know, they do a lot for open source, but you don't, you know, you, they don't come to you like, well, that's really what they're about. You know, they fund or, what's it, the raison d'etre or whatever, how mm-hmm. you pronounce that. You know, um, it's not the, the reason for the existence, but they're coming now trying to sort of talk about how they're really embracing this stuff and that. Anyway, the guy got got mauled over a little bit Um you know, I asked him about why can't I buy a laptop without uh, Windows on it, or a laptop that doesn't have the the, the window the Windows or Microsoft tax. Of course, and then some people in the audience got really heated about asking why that was the case. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and then it was also like, you know, what about secure boot and the locking down of the laptops with UEFI and all of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, my, my, my position on this, look, I'm, I'm happy that they're embracing open source. They're releasing some license under open source. They seem to be more, you know, recognize that they have to work at least with Linux. And that's all well and good, right? Um, so no, no one has a problem with that. But don't don't come and try. I mean, I don't think anybody doubts that if, if tomorrow it worked out, they could make more money by not doing open source, that they would just drop open source and forget about it. Sure. You know, it's not it's not like that. That's really what they're about, which is a lot of companies like, let's say, Canonical and Red Hat, and that that's really what they're about. They wouldn't, even if they couldn't make more money by going closed source, they wouldn't do that. So, I mean, for me, that's the that's the distinction, right? Um, yeah. What else I want to report back on was just had the Linux user group meetup. Uh, there we had a talk on. Um, on Tmux and Screen, that was one of the systems. Also, was a talk on System D, which right. is like you know I actually gave the talk on System D, which is where my I did all my research and I sort of confirmed my my current uh, reservations about System D yet again when I did that uh, that research. So, <laughs> was there a big fight between uh, Screen uh, users and Tmux users? Not really. It was like well, you know, the, the thing with trying to take away from it, why would I use Tmux and not Screen, right? And I think it's more of an architectural issue, the way I understand it, that TMUX sort of runs on the server, right, and it handles multiple sessions. But to be quite honest, I was busy sort of finishing off my slides for the System D presentation that I... Right. (laughs) I didn't pay that much attention. But, you know, from what I did here, I couldn't gather. It was just more like, yes, TMUX, yes, screen. And it wasn't really like, well, why is one more important than the other? Well, you know, I I can give you my personal experience. You know, I've been using... Ever since I realized such a tool, I mean, I've been, I used Linux for so long and, and uh, you know, SSH and remote servers for so long and I really hadn't used screen for, for until very, very, until maybe a year ago or so. And mm-hmm. um, I was using screen for a while 
And I had this particular remote server that I, that I connect to often. And it would happen that, you know, I'd, be, I'd have this long running session. And really after, I don't know, a week or so, I would get disconnected. This is, this is all anecdotal, by the way. This is not like any kind of real hard research. But ever since I switched from screen to Tmux, my connection, mm-hmm. my sort of ongoing, long-lasting, persistent connection has been pretty solid. Like I rarely okay. have mm-hmm. to, re- mm-hmm. you know, ever, you know, with screen, I would have to sort of like do this weird screen dash D dash RR to remove the dead mm-hmm. screens and reconnect. Mm-hmm. But um, with Tmux, I haven't ever had to do any kind of cleanup. I never had to reconnect. I'm like persistently connected. No problem. So I don't know. I don't know what that's about. I mean, uh, it just, Tmux has so far worked a lot better for me. And feature-wise, though, I mean, uh, let's say the stability issues get sorted out. Other features that, because it seems to be some features that Tmux has that um, the screen doesn't. I know screen is the commands a little bit esoteric. You know, in terms of like putting titles on screens and all of that kind yeah. of stuff, you know. The features I use in Tmux are pretty much the features I use in screen. I mean, nothing, mm. I don't, and I'm it's really not very, uh, what's the word? I don't get very advanced with it. I use it mm. only to just keep a persistent uh, session running, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, for me, I just use screen, you know. Sort of disconnect, you can get back home and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't kind of have some some session somewhere that I'm permanently on. You know, I know some people like to run it for uh, IRC. IRC and things like that. You know, but yeah. Anyway, okay, and um, I think uh, just looking at the the gig guide, we we're going to have a discussion, but I think we already hit our hour mark, so we're going to talk about JavaScript frameworks. But I think we'll keep that for um, maybe next week or whatever. We can do a recording and, and release that. Uh, you know, just JavaScript is it? You know, different opinions. I think I got one opinion, and Dan's got a different opinion. So, <laughs> should be it should be interesting. Uh-huh. Um, you know, which is basically the two camps. Yeah, as, as you can tell, I'm like the the dude that's not too impressed with things like System D. I'm like more, you know, you're skeptic. Yeah, I'm a skeptic about these things, and like, well, uh, yeah, you know. And then there's the the, the hipster types that think everything new is, and shiny is good. That's you know, me. which is probably a <laughs> And that shows my bias the way I described it there, you know. <laughs> um, so anyway, the, the the gig guide, just uh, Josie Jug, they've got a meeting this Monday, so it'll probably be over by the time you get this podcast, unfortunately. It's going to hold at Investec Bank uh, in, in Greyston there. So that will be in the center of, of Johannesburg. Man, I wonder if they're going to have the road closures in place by then or whether, yeah, because they got that whole green thing and like walking to, to work, so... Yeah, that'll be interesting to sort of see um, because there's no ways I'm cycling in the middle of well first I have to pump up my bike's tyres but there's no ways I'm cycling in the middle of the night down Greyston Drive uh-huh. and CBD anyway so they're going to have two sessions there Java App Server Troubleshooting that's the advanced se- session and then the a session called the Famous String Calculator Carter which is basically like a carter it's just a little exercise to you know train people up in code and um uh, like learn principles about the programming language and things like that. So that's for the introduction of the beginner um, Java Java session there. Josie Lug, we just had our meetup this week. Uh, so we haven't yet rescheduled a new one, but there should be one next month. Um, I'll have to speak to um, Boya Bongo about that. He's busy. He's he's the, the vice chair and he organizes all the meetings and stuff like that. So yeah, it all should be interesting. He's managing so far to organize really interesting discussions and, and talks. Awesome. I don't know if there's anything in Addis that you're aware of, uh, Dan. 
Uh, no, I have nothing to report. Um, I've just been so busy uh, with all my stuff that I haven't been able to actually get out and do stuff and actually meet new mm. people. So, yeah, hopefully by the time our next podcast comes around, I'll um, have uh, learned about some really cool, neat tech event here in Addis. Next week, I'm off to um, LinuxCon Europe. I'm giving a talk there on um, RPv6 uh, and Linux. So, yeah, that should be me out of the picture for that week. But, uh, you know, I should, maybe if we could do a recording, you know, we'll try to hit our two-weekly, twice-a-month uh, goal. Um, maybe we'll do a catch-up episode as well because there's been such a long delay between this one and the last one. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks for tuning in. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show and that you're getting something out of uh, all of these sort of, uh, what would I call it, chaotic ramblings or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> from Dan and myself. And if you've got anything to add, any corrections or anything like that, you can email us at mark at codinganafrica.com or dan at codinganafrica.com. Um, also, I can be contacted on Twitter at, at MXC, that's Mark X-Ray Charlie 4, digit 4, um, on Twitter, so MXE4. And I'm uh, Dan Fowler everywhere. Dan Fowler on Twitter, Dan Fowler on GitHub, danfowler.net. So, yeah, check that out. Okay, buddy, thanks for tuning in. Uh, see you next time. Bye bye.